welcome back to the St Emlyn's podcast. I'm Ian Beardsall. And I'm Simon Carley. And this is the second of a series of podcasts we're going to be doing, talking about a key skill in the emergency department, that of making diagnoses and how we decide when patients either have or haven't got disease. So Simon, could you just take a couple of minutes just to remind us where we got to after the first podcast and some of the things we talked about? Uh, Sure. I think there are a few things that we talked about last time. Um, The first was, what is a diagnosis? And the diagnosis we decided was a label. It's just a tag that we put on somebody and we say, if you've got this diagnosis, it's a tag that says you've got that label. This is what you have. We're going to do something about it. And if we don't give somebody the label, we don't give them the diagnosis, we're saying, well, I don't think you've got this. So we're not going to treat you or we're not going to do anything about it. But it's really just a label that we attach to something. We also talked about as emergency physicians that in terms of diagnoses, the one we're really interested in is the one that's going to kill you. So we we almost work backwards. We almost work from a perspective of deciding what somebody doesn't have rather than what they do have. That's our initial approach to many conditions. And that means that diagnostically speaking, we're most interested in tests which have a high sensitivity. So these are tests which will definitely pick up anybody who might have the disease. That's our usual first approach. Once we've been through that, then we start thinking about other tests which are specific that will tell us whether somebody definitely does have a disease because there are consequences to treatment for many of the things that we do. And deciding when that tipping point is about when we're going to go forward and treat somebody depends on how consequential the therapy is. So many of our therapies have got risks, such as thrombolysis, and we want to be fairly sure about that. Whereas other things, putting somebody in a wrist splint, for example, the consequences are pretty minimal, so we don't have to be as sure. If you put all of those things together, it really does put us into a situation where we have to accept that when we say you have a diagnosis or you don't, we're really talking about a probability. When we say you have, it means we, we think it's pretty likely that you do and it's worth treating. And when we say you don't, we mean mm, it's pretty unlikely and therefore by not giving you that label, you'll probably be OK. But it does mean we're probabilisticians, not diagnosticians. And that's a bit of a surprise to many people. So let's take that onto the ED shop floor and talk a little bit about how we might be able to use some of that in a patient who's presented to the ED, let's say with cardiac sounding chest pain. So we've got that idea, we need to get to the stage where we can either say with a degree of certainty that they haven't got the disease or that we want to rule in the disease and start treating them for whatever it may be, so ACS type treatment. How do we get from a patient who pitches up with cardiac sounding chest pain to that end stage that we've just been talking about? We need to go through some sort of diagnostic process. Chest pain is a great one to think about how diagnostic tests really work in practice. So let's take that group of patients. So you've got this group of patients who've got myocardial, potentially myocardial disease or symptoms which are suggestive. Let's go for the big wins early. Let's go for something which is really specific, which will rule in the diagnosis. So a spin. And that would be your ECG. Your ECG, if it's positive, you've got big ST segment changes, um, you're going to go off to the lab. They've almost certainly got the disease. Well, certainly 95% certain. And it's worth treating that group of patients. So we'll go for a big win early. Specific test, ECG, it's positive. Get rid of them. Move them on to other things. They're an easy group of patients to deal with because it's all protocolised medicine. Similarly, those who've got pretty dodgy looking ECGs, they can go the same way, really. You're not going to be sending those patients home. So we're going for those big wins early. We're then left with a group of patients who, in my experience, they've got normal ECGs or very nearly normal ECGs. And the symptoms aren't that dramatic. They've not recently had an MI. They've not got chest pain at rest. But it's potentially possible. And those are patients who we don't want to send home with without doing anything. But we need to make sure that we pick up those who have got myocardial disease. And there are about 10% of that group have actually had a myocardial damage event. 
So we need something which is sensitive, and that's when we start thinking about sensitive tests, which will pick up anybody who might have the condition. So just to reiterate that then, the ECG is a relative specific test because there's few false positives. So if we see an abnormality on an ECG, it's likely that the patient may well have disease. It's still important to relate it to what the patient looks like. We see some young patients with what might be described as high takeoff, and I think having an idea of their age and a few other bits and pieces help us. But it's a quick quick way of ruling patients in because it's a specific test. So we've got those ones sorted. Then we want to now work on saying who hasn't got the disease. How, we must have an idea of prevalence, I guess, in our population. And in this terms, we can really equate prevalence to pretest probability. Is that can we use those terms relatively interchangeably at the start? Absolutely, I think, and I think it's it's sometimes confusing when um, people uh, talk about them in, as if they're very different things. Prevalence in that population now is good, and that's going to be our pretest probability if we're going to do some testing. And for that group of patients, normal ECGs, no particular things in the history, they're not in heart failure, no major features on examination. It's about ten percent of them have actually got underlying myocardial damage, so it's still quite high. So ten percent is our pretest probability. It's obviously not low enough to say they haven't got the disease because we've been missing quite a lot of patients but it's also not high enough to start giving them the treatment because the treatment could have harm so we need to take those patients now and move them further down that diagnostic pathway we should really start with the history shouldn't we so let's think how we can use some of those things we've just talked about but equate them to a patient in the ed so i think it'd be we see lots of patients with chest pain and lots of patients with cardiac sounding chest pain so why do we try and relate a little bit of what we've learned so far into a real patient scenario So a patient turns up with cardiac sounding chest pain. How do we get to the stage where we can either say you haven't got the disease, you're safe to go home, or you have got the disease, we think it's more probable that you have, we're going to start treatment on you. What's the best way to go about that? Well, great example. Chest pain's a beautiful one if we want to think about how diagnostic tests work in clinical practice. So you've got that group of patients, you said, and they're, they're cardiac sounding chest pain patients? You're yeah, so these there? are the patients that we describe as having a cardiac sounding chest pain. So we want to get them through to be sure they haven't got an ACS type problem. Yeah, so we're thinking about things like myocardial infarction and, and aortic dissection, that kind of thing. And that's great. I think everybody will understand what we're talking about. So let's, let's think about how we'd use our diagnostic test. Let's go for some easy wins early. Let's use something which is really specific and which is pretty good and can rule in. So a spin test, let's use an ECG. An ECG is quite a good test because it's specific. If you've got big ST segment changes there, that's good. If you've got lots of ST segment depression, then that's also good. It identifies a high-risk group of patients who are either going to be definitely admitted and given antithrombotic um, medication or are going to go off to the lab, get PCI or thrombolysis. So use of an early specific test is fantastic. Move them out dead easy to deal with by specific we're meaning there's few false positives so it's more likely if we see these abnormalities that they're true they're true positives and the patient has the problem so we can use that test it's still important i guess to have a bit of an idea about the patient because there will be other things that we know about that will cause some of those changes so having an eyeball of the patient from the end of the bed and having an idea of their age perhaps might give us a bit of a hint but generally that's going to sort out one set of patients off they go decision made you're staying in you're having your treatment okay how do we go about that the rest of the patients who we've got with cardiac chest pain who aren't so obvious yeah well i think you're going to be left then with about still about 50 percent of the patients are going to have a pretty normal looking ecg 
symptoms compatible with myocardial disease, but no major examination findings and no, nothing particularly alarming in the history, like the fact that they had a myocardial infarction last week. In that group of patients, you've still got about 10% of them are going to have underlying myocardial disease if you look hard enough for it, which is still pretty so hard. So 10%, this is now what we're describing as our prevalence, or we could maybe even call that pretest probability. That we, could, we can use those terms interchangeably, that's okay? Yeah, I think so. I think when we're talking about pretest probability, it's, it's quite good that we're talking about the specific group of patients who we've now filtered down to. Whereas prevalence, people might say, well, it's the prevalence of people who turn up in your ED. But pretest probability, I think that's really essential for an emergency physician to understand that's our group because the test performance is going to vary depending on your pretest probability. And so the, this is the probability that that patient has disease in the group that we're talking about. So now we've got to a group who have a 10% probability of having a bad outcome or a disease that we want to diagnose now we've said already that's not enough to say we're going to rule it out and not treat you anymore we want to be less than two percent really for that but because of the nature of the disease and the nature of the treatment which can have harm it's also not high enough to start doing treatment for those patients so we need to start moving that 10 percent either up towards a level where we're happy to treat or down to a level where we're happy to say it isn't an ACS-type picture. And how do we go about that? We've got to start with history, haven't we? Well, to some extent, we've done some of that already. So we've got ourselves to the point where, on history and examination, we're about 10%. We've, we've done as much as we probably can. We've now got to move on and think about laboratory tests. And in our practice, we use troponins. I don't know what you use in Yeah, We're the same with troponin. We're about to move to a high-sensitivity troponin. Oh, right. OK, so 21st century stuff. Marvellous. Um, oh, I would say that because in Manchester, in Verchester, we've been doing high sensitive training for a number of years. But that's because of the wonderful Rick body, of course. Um, yeah, we're going to use um, some diagnostic tests. And, and what we're trying to do with that, what are we trying to do with the diagnostic tests is exactly as you describe. What we're trying to do is to say that the probability after we've done the test is either so low we can let you go home or it's so high that we're going to come up. So we're trying to move a probability, and we do that by a function of diagnostic tests, which we would call a likelihood ratio. So a likelihood ratio, which is positive, so you get a positive result, it makes it more likely that you've then got the diagnosis. And it moves, and so, it moves that probability higher to a certain degree. Yeah. And if it's a negative result, it moves the probability lower. And it's a function of both the sensitivity and the specificity. And the likelihood ratio the more positive it is the more it will move you up in that direction in effect the better the test is for diagnosing and if it's a negative likelihood ratio it moves you more down towards that rule out criteria so this is again all about how good that test is at the diagnosis you're looking for yeah and absolutely and you can have the same test that's got a really good positive ratio likelihood ratio and a really rubbish negative one, or you can have one which has got a really rubbish negative one and a really um, great positive one. So it does really depend on exactly how you're using a test. And troponin's a good one. High sensitive troponin's a good one because it's very good at ruling out because it's super sensitive. It's not particularly good at ruling in because it's not very specific. And so that affects the function of the lowest likelihood ratio. So if we have our patient with a 10% pretest probability, and um, we've got to that via combination of history and other things although i think it's quite hard for physicians to really know what a pretest probability is but let's say it's about that 10 percent level and we do the high sensitivity troponin in whichever guise you're going to do that how many tests you're going to do that sh could well be enough to take us low enough to take us below that two percent threshold and say we're happy to stop now yeah that's if you're using high sensitivity troponin as just as a yes no type thing so um, if it's either above or below this level 
and that, that, that is still functional. But that's still a little bit similar to just using a sensitivity specificity, isn't it? It's still a bit like a yes-no type question. I guess the sensitivity and specificity all go to make up the likelihood ratio. So I guess they're interlinked, aren't they? In, in, inexplicably sort of linked? Yeah, they are. But take that one step further. Take that one step further and say, well, OK, say our level of troponin for ruling out would be 14. OK. Nanograms. OK, it's fine. Why is it 14? It's because we've chosen that level, because at that level it's particularly good for ruling out. What if we changed that level? What if we made it at 30? Well, it wouldn't be as good at ruling out, but would that be better at ruling in? And the answer is it would. So depending on where you put your level on a test like troponin, a continuous variable, will affect how good that test is at performing. So you could even have the same test, but with a different value it would be great at ruling in. At a lower value it would be great at ruling out. Now, we don't do that very often as diagnosticians, but that is the function of many, many tests that we use. It actually works for things like amylase. It actually works for things like white cell count in appendicitis. Many things which a lot of people would say, that test doesn't work. Well, it does at either very high levels or at very low levels. In the middle ground... And I guess tests like the troponin have been extensively investigated, and so we get somebody who's looked at that a long time to set that level for us. But as... I'm going to call myself, without hesitation, a bog-standard emergency physician. I guess I have to develop my own level with the white cell count or those other tests you talked about to say where I'm happy about, oh, do you know what, a white cell count of 18 in this context, I don't think that's important. So it's more diff- it gets more difficult with those other less binary tests, if you like, about how we're going to use them at the end, those continuous variables. Yeah, but I think you do it all the time already. I, and I put it to you that if somebody comes in and they've got a, a troponin of 6,000, although most of the time we're told to use, um, or most people are using uh, high-sensitive troponins as, as rule-outs. If somebody comes through with a troponin of 6,000, I think that's a bit of a rule-in, isn't it? I guess it is. I guess it is. Um, so we've got our patient with the pretest probability of 10%, and we're going to do a troponin, a high-sensitive troponin on them. Now, it's a bit like the D-dimer, isn't it? It's a sensitive test. We're just looking for a negative test because it's going to take us... We're just looking for a sensitive test because it's going to take us to that level where we can rule it out. Same as with the D-dimer. What happens with that if we actually don't get a negative high-sensitive opponent? So it comes back positive. We're no better off, are we? Well, as I say, it depends on the level. If it comes back very, very high, you can use these tests because they're continuous variables to rule in a diagnosis. But a lot of the time it'll come back sort of slightly raised, in which case it's not particularly helpful. D-dimer is perhaps a better example. A D-dimer which is negative, so below the the, um, investigation level, you can use that to rule out in low probability patients. If it comes back as positive, it just means you're going to have to go on and do further testing, and that might be further serial biochemical testing to look for rise and fall, as we do with troponins. Quick interlude here. Uh, We don't do serial testing for D-dimers, of course. We do VQ scans or further imaging to define whether or not the patient has the disease. Or it might be an alternative test entirely, such as a VQ scan or a CTPA for PE. So all the time we're taking a pre-test probability, applying a test and getting a post-test probability. And until that post-test probability is satisfactory to rule in or rule out, we keep going. And we keep going, and that may be as part of the history. So we said at the very beginning, we start off with that group of patients where we apply the test. The test is the ECG. That has a good positive likelihood ratio. If it shows changes, it's likely the patient has disease. That takes us our post-test probability high enough to rule in. 
But in this case, we've got to the stage with troponin, that pretest probably did 10%. We've done a test, it's not changed enough. We haven't got to the threshold of ruling in or ruling out. We need another test. And that's how we think all the time, I guess. We do that with everything we see, whether that's the patient who pitches up with a headache. We operate a diagnostic test that might be asking some questions about the headache. And each question is in itself a diagnostic test. Each time striving to get to the stage where we can say, do you know what? I'm satisfied that in all likelihood you don't have that illness. I can move on and do something else with you. Yeah, you're quite right. Every little node, every little point where you're making a decision or asking a question is a diagnostic test in itself and that will change your pre-test probability to a post-test probability. So Simon, I think we've taken everyone a bit further down that line of working out whether a patient has disease or doesn't have a disease, using diagnostic testing to take our pre-test probabilities through to post-test probabilities and just adding a little bit of sensitivity, specificity, likelihood ratios into the mix to try and give that mathematical bent to think about these probabilities. That's probably enough for certainly my brain today. Maybe not for yours, but it might be for the listeners as well. Why don't we come back again in uh, our next episode to take this further and work out what it means to decide to give a patient treatment and how we decide if that treatment's going to be effective and whether even that treatment might harm as well as do good. So please think about what we've been talking about. We'd love to hear from you. Get in touch via all of those methods you could, Twitter, via the website. We'd love to hear anything you've got to say. And um, we'll look forward to speaking to you very soon. Take care. Uh, Ian, just before you go... Uh, last last time I did ask you what your favourite yes. test was. You were very fond of your ultrasound machine. If I, I like early. technology. Mm. Uh, what's your least favourite test? Um, you see, you always just do this. I think we're about to finish and I'm all just chilled out. I'm about to pop to the fridge, get myself a beer, pat myself on the back and you just land me with a question. And so I'm going to answer for you today, Professor Simon Carley, I'm going to say the white cell count. Oh, why is that? I don't know. I just think everyone puts a load of emphasis on the white count as being important and Almost never can I think of a time where it changes my pretest probability significantly enough about whether I'm going to treat a patient or send them home. Because I've already made the decision mm. based on everything else. And apart from the occasional patient I happen to pick up via a screening type test who has some awful leukemia, which has happened about once in my career, I can never think of a time it's been helpful, apart from convincing a surgeon that a patient might be poorly. Yeah, I think I said. Do you want to know what my least favourite is? I, I most certainly do. Yeah, it's CRP. Yeah, CRP, you see, it's always that one that emergency physicians like to beat up. And we managed to stop people doing CRPs, I think, which is great. So all we need to do now is stop them doing white cell counts and both of us can be happy. Yeah, my missus a vowel, though. <laughs> anyway, see you another Take time. Take care. You needed to say the word vowel a bit clearer. Yes. Yeah.